Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter to you. <laughs> My name is Glenn Packiam. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. And it is so good to see you on an Easter Sunday morning at Palmer High School. The last time we did this was 2019. It's amazing. Yes. We were in person for Easter last year, but we couldn't get into the high school, so we were at the hotel. But this feels like home, right? Squeaky chairs and all. But hey, you look fabulous. So turn to the person next to you and just say, you look really nice today. You look great. You look good. (laughs) You too, too, Marvin. You do, too. All right, join me with a word of prayer as we open this morning. So Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You are the light that broke through the darkness, the hope that we have of resurrection. And we pray this morning as we think about the story again and open up the scriptures that you would open up our hearts and our minds to see you in a fresh way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You know, there are children in the room this morning, and children have such wonderful imaginations. My wife and I have been married for almost 21 years. We have four kids. And when our kids were a lot younger, it wouldn't have been uncommon for me to come home one day and, uh, or on the weekend and recognize that the, the living room had been rearranged. And the couches, instead of being at a 90-degree angle, would have been arranged one in front of the other. And there would be stuffed animals on either, all around on these couches. I'd say, what's going on here? And they said, we just went on a road trip with our ginormous family. And these, this teddy bear and this dog and this whatever pig or stuffed animal, all the stuff. These are our family and we're on this road trip. Or some nights after dinner, the kids would announce, you're supposed to come down to the basement. There's a special night at the theater that we've prepared. And we needed our tickets that we needed to you know, have. And if you didn't have a ticket, you couldn't go down there. Um, one time, the, the Olympics were going on, and our basement carpet had been transformed into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. You know, And they were swimming, and of course, USA won everything. My favorite was one time I came down and they were baptizing each other into the carpet. I said, well, we better talk about this. I think there's a way to do this at church. Now, they come by it honestly, you know, because both Holly and I, we we were like that as kids. But I I grew up in Malaysia, so it didn't require a ton of imagination because I actually had the Millennium Falcon. (laughs) Now, I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, That... That is me at, a, I don't know how old, eight years old or something, six years old, who knows how old I was. But we used to go to this place in the highlands and there was this fallen down tree and the roots had come up at just the right angle that it was not actually a fallen down tree. Those were the gears and the levers of the Millennium Falcon. Clearly, I was Han Solo. Okay, enough of that picture. When we moved from Malaysia to America during my middle school years, it was when uh, Michael Jordan was starting to make his mark on the league. And I just need to say, I know it's Easter, but we just got to settle this. MJ is the GOAT. Like, there's, no, there's nobody. Thank you, Ken. There, there's no one who comes close to Jordan, okay? So I got to the States in the late 80s, and I had Jordan posters up on, my, in my, uh, on the wall of my room. 
And I started to learn how to play basketball. And so I wanted my active imagination took over. And I thought I could be like Mike. And so I bought like a red sweatband like that you wear on your forearm. And then I noticed this is when MJ was wearing like the red knee brace or, you know. And we were kind of broke. My parents were Bible college students. So we couldn't afford like a proper knee brace. So, but I found some uh, red volleyball knee pads. Now, I I wore one of those (laughs) to play in our middle school basketball games, and people were like, why why is he wearing one knee pad? Like, is he going to dive on one knee? And then I I found a way to cut it out and take the padding out, and so it it looked silly. And I'm happy to report that, no, it actually did not improve my game at all. I could not dunk. I could not jump. Our theme this morning on Easter Sunday 2022 is Our Hope Remains. Our hope remains. But maybe when we look around at the world around us, we look at pandemic and wars and political divisions and strife, economic uncertainty, you think, well, Glenn, I mean, is this just sort of the adult version of having an active imagination? Kids imagine that they're swimming in an Olympic-sized pool when it's really the carpet, but do grown-ups just sort of play at the same thing? Do we just all come in here one Sunday of the year, put on nice clothes, and pretend that everything is going okay, that we've got a reason to have hope? Is hope just the result of the grown-up version of an active imagination? We understand that hope, even though we use the word so loosely, hope is much more than optimism. It's much more than positive feelings. It's much more than a wish It's much more of this sort of longing or desire. Hope has to be aimed at something. And so when we look at the world around us, a world that organizes itself apart from Jesus or apart from a God of any kind, you might say that the secular version of hope is progress. The secular kind of vision of hope, the secular hope is in progress. The sense that we can make things better if we just work harder. And certainly there's, there are things to confirm that belief. We recognize the advancements in technology and medicine in particular on the top of our minds. And we say, oh, it's incredible. Maybe this is how we'll rid the world of all of what ails it. Human ingenuity, goodwill, a sense of common good. A hundred years ago or so, people said the same thing. At the beginning of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, people in Europe and on this side of the Atlantic were proclaiming that we had sort of figured it out. We'd solved it. At that time, it had been, there hadn't been a European war for a hundred years. And so optimism ran high. Hope in progress was at an all-time high. And then, before you knew it, World War I began, and then came the Spanish flu, and then World War II, or before that, the Great Depression here in America, and then World War II, and then people were not so optimistic, but give history enough time and the decades pass. By the late 90s, you had journalists like Thomas Friedman writing books like The Lexus and The Olive Tree, declaring that the answer was liberal democracy and free market capitalism and no two countries that had a McDonald's in it had ever gone to war with one another. And so hopes began to rise again. Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History. 
declaring that the, the arrival of this form of government was the apex of civilization. There was nothing more that could stop the march of peace and prosperity. Now here we are in 2022 and we think, I'm not so sure about that. Coming through a pandemic, watching Ukraine be blown apart, a major country perpetrating horrific crimes. We look at our world and we think, is progress really enough? Can we put our hope in that? But maybe you're saying, okay, Glenn, you shoot holes in that, but the Christian version's not better, is it? Because the Christian version is some sort of like, believe in Jesus and then you'll go to a happy place after you die. Well, who cares about that? And I want to say to you on this Easter morning that the Christian hope is not an evacuation. Christian hope is not in an evacuation. That the good news that Christians have on offer to the world is not to say, don't worry, it's going to get super bad out here, down here, but eventually God will take us to his place and it'll be all good. Many of you maybe have served in combat situations. You don't need me to tell you that an evacuation is not the same thing as a victory. Christian hope is not for an evacuation. And so then maybe say, well, well, no, I don't really think of it that way. Actually, I think what's going to happen is we're going to die, we're going to get to heaven, and God will sort of make it up to us. But Christian hope is not for compensation. It's not for God kind of making it up to us and making everything bad sort of make us forget about it. I'm a child of the 90s. In my 20s, it was the early 2000s, so I think of that great pop culture hymn, Fix You by Coldplay. <laughs> Tears stream down on your face when you lose something you can't replace. Even in our bones, we know there's something that happens and you can't, you can't just have somebody just make it up to you. You're sitting in the room this morning. If you've lost a loved one or a family member or experienced something terribly painful, it doesn't work to just say, well, don't worry, there'll be streets of gold. You're like, I don't want streets of gold. I want this thing that I've lost. So what is our hope? What is our hope? One of the early followers, one of the early church planters was a guy named Paul. And he wrote a letter. He wrote several letters. One of his earliest letters was to a church in a city called Corinth. Now, Corinth, we don't know much about it, but Corinth wasn't an overly religious city. In fact, Corinth was a city of pleasure. Corinth was a city where they valued uh, materialism and good looks and athletic prowess. Corinth was basically anywhere USA, a good old-fashioned American city. And this young, sort of scrappy church planter had planted a congregation of Jesus followers in the city of Corinth, and he wrote them this letter, 1 Corinthians is what we call it. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message that I preached to you. Hang on to that phrase there, you are being saved. We're going to come back to it at the end of the sermon. You are being saved. And then he says, I passed on to you 
As most important, what I also received. Paul's like, I'm kind of late to the party, but this was already a tradition in the first few decades of the life of Christ. He says, Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas or Peter, one of the other followers, and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. What Paul is not saying is, There was this guy, Jesus, and he died, but we all have this sort of feeling of his presence with us. Paul's not kind of pulling a sort of Lion King moment where Simba looks at his reflection and says, Mufasa lives in you. (laughs) Paul is saying, no, man, they were witnesses. They were eyewitnesses. This isn't a feeling of the presence of Jesus. This is... More than 500 brothers and sisters, most of them, he says, are still alive to this day. This is Paul's way of saying, go ask them. Though some have died, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he says, he appeared to me as if I were born at the wrong time. Skip down to verse 11. It says, so then, whether you heard this message from me or them, this is what we preach, and this is what we believed. We, we dealt with the first half of That paragraph on Friday night, on Good Friday, and here we are on Easter morning looking at the second half of what Paul is saying. Not only did Christ die for our sins according to the scripture, but Christ has been raised. Friends, on this Sunday morning, I want to say to you that our hope is resurrection. Our hope is resurrection. Our hope is not some sensation. Our hope is resurrection. But what is the hope of resurrection? Maybe you've been in church for a long time. Maybe you're new to this whole thing. Maybe you're sort of outside looking in. Maybe you're inside leaning out. All of us need to wrestle with this question this morning. What is the hope of resurrection? And I want to say three things about what resurrection means. Number one is this. Resurrection is the reversal of the power of sin. Resurrection found sin coming like a runaway train and didn't just stop it, but it reversed its momentum. Listen to what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless. We are found to be false witnesses about God because we testified against God that he raised Christ. We're making stuff up. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We're found to be false witnesses against God. And then he goes on and he says, When he didn't raise him, if that's the case, that the dead aren't raised. And if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, Paul's like, It's not just that we look bad. It's that your faith is worthless. And you would be still in your sins. Paul links the resurrection to the power of sin. And what he's trying to say is if Jesus wasn't actually raised up, then you aren't actually free. You're still stuck under the power of sin. But he says what the resurrection does is it doesn't just stop the power of sin, it reverses it. It sends your life in another direction. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, actually, I feel, I feel like I'm caught in these spirals and these patterns and these habits and I don't know how to shake out of it. The good news of Jesus' resurrection means that not only can a certain pattern or a certain trajectory be stopped, the whole trajectory of your life can be changed. It can be reversed. 
And Paul should know because that happened to him. We know him as Paul the Apostle, but before he was that, he was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul, his good Hebrew name, Saul was zealous for the God of Israel and the God of his tradition. And Saul actually encountered some of those first followers of Jesus. Maybe the reason Paul knows there's 500 of them, because he went hunting for them. He was opposed to them. He was trying to find them out in different towns and cities. And there were these rumors, Saul's coming, we better hide. Saul's coming, look out. And in one notable story, Saul himself is presiding over the stoning of a remarkable young Christian named Stephen. But Saul himself gets interrupted by the resurrected Jesus. Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus doesn't just stop Saul. He changes his trajectory. He doesn't just stop the way he was headed See, listen, maybe some of you thought that all God was interested in doing was getting you to just stop it. Just stop whatever you do. Just stop. He's interested in reversing the power of sin, turning the trajectory of your life around. But it didn't stop with Saul, who became known as Paul. This story has replayed itself out over and over and over again for 2,000 years. 350 years or so after Paul, there was a mother in North Africa named Monica who was praying for her wayward son. This guy was intelligent and brilliant, but also loved to have a good time. One night, he left in the middle of the night, and she tracked him down. Like, this is the mid-300s, y'all, like no GPS. Mother's instinct, she found him. And she said, look, there's only one reason and one reason that I want to stay alive, and that's to see you become a Christian, Monica said. And eventually her boy became a Christian. Not only did he stop, but God reversed the power of sin, and this young man became a pastor, who then became a bishop in North Africa, who then became one of the greatest theologians of church history. We know him as St. Augustine. She probably called him Augie. And listen, Augie, I'm praying for you. It's not over until God gets you. Resurrection is the reversal of the power of sin. Secondly, resurrection is the defeat of death. It's the total and utter defeat of death. Listen to what Paul says, verse 18. He says, look, he's still going on his role here. He's saying, if Jesus hasn't been raised up, not only are you dead in your sins, but what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. There's no more hope. Every funeral should be complete tragedy. It's always tragic when we lose someone. But Paul is saying, it's final, (laughs) tragic and final. But then verse 19, he says, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. This is radical. Because in the West today, in America today, in Western societies today, people try to be charitable towards Christians when they're trying. And they'll say, well, what'd you do this weekend? Well, I went to church. It was Easter. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Whatever helps you. Whatever helps you manage your stuff. Whatever makes you kind of feel better. I mean, we all need a little boost of self-esteem. We all need a little bit of good mental health. So whatever helps you, good for you. But you know what Paul says? Paul says, no, 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 no. 
If all this is is a little crutch to get through the day, then you shouldn't say good for me. You should say, I'm so sorry for you. If all that Christianity has to offer is a better feeling to make it through another week, another day at the grind, if that's all, that the reason we go to church is just to just, just get a little bit of hope for this life. Paul says, don't feel good for me. Feel sorry for me. Because resurrection is the defeat of death. Paul starts to describe it later on in this chapter, verse 54. He says, and when the rotting body has been clothed in what can't decay, he's saying, if Jesus has been raised, Jen said it early in worship, if Jesus has been raised, one day we who are in Christ will be raised. And Paul says that rotting body will be clothed in what cannot decay, and the dying body has been clothed in what can't die. And on that day, when you get a resurrection body, and you get a resurrection body, and you get a resurrection body, on that great day when we all receive our resurrection bodies, this statement in Scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting, death? Death's sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. See, maybe you thought that the Christian version of hope is that we'll fly away. It's actually not what the Bible says. Maybe you thought that the Christian version of hope is la, 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 just sort of grin and bear it, and one day we'll be taken up in the sweet by and by, but it's not what the Bible says. We already established this evacuation is not a victory. Resurrection is the total and utter defeat of death. They didn't look at Jesus' body and say, well, he just sort of, you know, like passed through death. He kind of survived death. He was resuscitated somehow. He went through that gruesome uh, weekend, but man, he made it through. He was not Superman who was weakened by kryptonite, but all of a sudden, with one last gasp, broke the chains. In fact, the early Christians did not preach by using the phrase that Jesus rose. What they said was, God raised Jesus from the dead. They were trying to say to the people around them who were just as puzzled as we are, say, but that doesn't happen. Yeah, it didn't happen 2,000 years ago either until Jesus. And they were trying to say this one was truly and fully dead, but God defeated death, not by bringing him to survive it, but to conquer it. That's what resurrection is. I don't know if you experienced um, in in school uh, a playground bully. Happens to me one time in junior high, but imagine for a moment that you are there on the playground and you're being bullied and picked on and beaten up. And your dad drives by and he sees what's going on and he says, oh my gosh, John, Johnny, just get over here. Get in the car. You hop in the car and he's like, whoo, man, it looks bad. Show me your eye. And his face is all banged up. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay, Um, let's go get milkshakes. You're like, Okay. But this is how we think about hope as a Christian. It's like, wow, the world is terrible and there's war and there's violence and there's injustice and there's oppression and there's tragedy and there's sickness and there's cancer and there's death. And God's like, wow, okay, well, hey, good news. I've got streets of gold, a house of glory, and some amazing milkshakes. (laughs) An escape and compensation. 
But actually, this, the picture that we get in the Bible is more like this. God, the, God rolls up to the playground and sees the bully called sin and death and the devil himself. And he gets out the car and says, I'm stepping onto the scene of humanity. I'm stepping into the world that I created. And he took on flesh and he drives out the enemy and defeats sin and death and the devil. And then says, hang on, we're not going anywhere. Let's remodel this place and makes the playground even more beautiful and throws a party and says, invite all your friends. We are going to have milkshakes, but it's going to be right here. And all of a sudden, the place of pain becomes a place of peace and the place of sorrow becomes a place of joy that's what it means when we have new creation resurrection is the defeat of death and then thirdly as it leads right to it resurrection is new creation it's new creation the vision at the end of the scriptures is not leaving but God arriving in fullness God's saying, I'm going to make my dwelling place here with humanity. What other word could we have for the stories, the way people are describing Jesus' body after the resurrection? You know, people who study eyewitness accounts tell us that actually when all the eyewitnesses' stories line up perfectly, that's when you should get suspicious. Somebody's planning this. But when people who study eyewitness accounts say, yeah, they're, they're, mostly they're saying the same thing, but there's some little detail. Was it a red car or a blue car that ran the light? Did it come in from the left? Or was it, and there's some slight... And when you read the gospel accounts, they read like that. Like, well, it was Peter who was at the tomb. Well, no, actually, it was the women. No, it was John beat Peter to the tomb. And you're like, well, they didn't see him. And all of these accounts have the texture and feeling of eyewitness accounts just passing on their stories. And not only that, but they're struggling to describe Jesus' body, (laughs) you know? I mean, in one of the stories, Mary sees him and thinks he's the gardener. I mean, what happened? Did Jesus get extra scruffy in the grave? (laughs) She's a gardener, man. What's going on? And he says her name, Mary, and she recognizes his voice. That's you. In other situations, Jesus shows up in rooms where the doors are locked because the disciples are scared. And I love this because resurrection Jesus keeps showing up in surprising moments, like behind locked doors, and they're all like freaked out, and then he goes, don't be afraid. Like, well, stop scaring us, you know, like, (laughs) come on. And then you're like, oh, well, he's walking through, maybe he's a ghost, maybe they're seeing hallucinations or visions, and then he says, I'm hungry, what do you guys have to eat? They're watching him eat. Do you know how many meals are recorded with resurrection Jesus in the Gospels? On the beach, with the disciples, on the road to Emmaus, in the upper... You're you're like, what's going on? He can all of a sudden appear, but he's also eating. This is not resuscitation of the same old body. Neither is it some sort of hallucination of some kind of spirit being. This is new creation. And the followers of Jesus are stretching the limits of language to try to say, we don't know what's going on. Listen, if you're here this morning, you're like, Glenn, that doesn't make any sense. I know. It didn't make any sense to them either. It's not as if, well, those ancient pagans, unsophisticated, um, they understood (laughs) that what they were seeing was not someone who survived or resuscitated and not someone that they were hallucinating. This is new creation. The truth is, It's what the world needs right now. 
You look around at the world around us. The world does not need some sort of modest improvement or progress. The world needs to be reborn. And maybe you say, well, actually, I don't even have to look about at the headlines out there. All I need to do is think about my own life. What we need is not just modest self-improvement, little bits of just get a little better here and a little better there. What we actually need is new creation. You see, resurrection does not emerge from possibilities which are latent in a corpse. Resurrection is not the result of some untapped potential in a corpse. Resurrection is from the outside. We live in a moment where people want to say to us that actually it's all in you. Just try harder. Just do better. Just you've got it. It's in you. And you're like, but what if it's not? (laughs) Maybe you thought that all that church and Christianity was was just sort of a dressed up version of self-help. Just, yeah, I know, Glenn, I, I just need to get my life back together and I need to cut out these bad habits because, you know, bad habits lead to late nights ending alone. Conversations with a stranger I barely know. I, I just got to change a few things. Can I say to you this morning that my invitation to you is not self-improvement. It's not even a second chance. What resurrection is about is new creation. God's not offering you a new start. He's offering you a new life, a new heart. We sang earlier that phrase, born again. Not to try again, but to be born again. In Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. In other words, one day we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. One day we're going to see, but you know how you can get it now? You know how you can receive it now? If you're in Christ, you're part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. What is on offer for you on this Easter morning is not kind of a new way of thinking, a new idea, new motivation. What is on offer for you today because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead is new creation. To actually be born again. Some years ago, a young man walked in the doors here at Palmer and he was very distraught. And he says, look, I just need help. I, I, you know, my life is just, it's kind of a mess. I'm in this relationship, but I don't know. It, it's kind of a toxic thing. And I'm like, dude, she's right there. Um, and so we start talking, and he comes to church. <laughs> Didn't quite happen like that. but And we, got, we invited him to Alpha, what Pastor Jason was talking about. And he attends Alpha for eight weeks, and he starts to get convicted. He's like, I do want to know this Jesus. I do want to believe in this Jesus. And so he's, he and, and, and this gal that he's in this relationship with, they, they start to get some uh, connected with another couple, a mentor couple in the church who's working with them. And individually they start to say, actually there's some really destructive patterns that are at work in this relationship. And they're struggling and struggling. And all of a sudden they decide to part ways. But that breakup sends him into a spiral of depression and anxiety. And he's relapsing into some of his old habits 
And he calls me, he says, can we get together? We started meeting regularly, sometimes weekly, sometimes every other week. And mostly I would just sit and listen to him in my office and there are words that he said have probably never been said in the church office before. He's processing all of the depths of his angst and anger and confusion and feelings. And I said to him one day, I said, bro, I think what's happening is an old version of you is dying. God wants to bring about resurrection in your life, but it's going to require a death. And he's like, okay. And he, he starts to describe it, and he's like, it's so painful, and it's just so awful, and I'm so tempted. And, and we kept meeting. But an old version of him was dying. And then one day I said to him, I said, hey, have you ever considered being baptized? And so I haven't been baptized. I mean, maybe when I was a kid, but I've gone a long way around and around and I said, well, look, it, it can be a way of sort of declaring this. And he said, okay, let's, let's do it. And next Sunday, by the way, here at New Life Downtown, we're going to do water baptism right here. And you're listening to the story, and you're like, maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. You're saying, maybe this is me. So he signs up, and Pastor Jason and I were in the tank with him, and we baptize him, and he comes up, and we're crying, and he's smiling, and it's just so great. I'm thinking, yes, Lord, do it, Lord. And then I get a call from him the next day, and he's like, Glenn, I don't feel any different. <laughs> he's like, I don't know, it just feels the same, you know. I said, I get it, man. Like when you're born again, you don't, you're not born again into maturity all of a sudden. Like babies, like there's just growth, right? Jesus said the kingdom works like a seed in the ground or like yeast in the dough. Like stay with Jesus and watch resurrection life start to take place. It's like, okay. Began to join a men's Bible study and discipleship group. And we lost touch a little bit during the pandemic. And then he reached out to me one day and he said, I've met this girl. And I started to get nervous right away. I said, oh, no. <laughs> he said, but I want you to be involved. Be part of doing the premarital with us via Zoom. So I said, okay. We started doing this premarital. And I thought, how, what, like, what is happening? It was so good. And then shortly after that, they got married. Last summer, I dropped in to visit them. They just had their first child. I said, man, do you ever think about like what your life was like three years ago, four years ago? He goes, Glenn, that feels like a different person. Feels like a different person. Because Jesus didn't just interrupt the trajectory of sin. He reversed it. He didn't just rescue him from death. He defeated death. He didn't just give him a new start. He made him new creation. The worship team, would you come this morning? As we get ready to pray, I want to invite you to stand. You're here on an Easter Sunday morning. And what we want to say to you today is today everything can begin to change. Remember that phrase I asked you to hang on to in Paul's letter? He says, you are being saved. If you follow Jesus, that's what we're signing up. We're signing up for this transformation journey and process. You are being saved. So today, maybe there's some of you that need to say this for the very first time. To say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to 
have you changed the trajectory of my life? So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And everyone else in the room who is already following Jesus, you're welcome to pray along for moral support. (laughs) I just want you to repeat these words after me, if you would. Jesus, I need you. I'm stuck. I can't change myself. I can't change my situation. Thank you that you came for me. Thank you that you died for me. Thank you that you were raised up for me. Give me the strength to turn away from my old life. Where relationships need to end, let them end. Where habits need to change, let them change. Make me a new creation. Break the power of death. Change the trajectory of my life. I give myself to you for your glory for all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen.